It says something, I think, about Australian politics when during the recent election, more people tuned into Home and Away than the leaders' debate. Meaning that people are more concerned about developments in Summer Bay than who runs the country. And hey, you know, fair enough, you might say, but it wasn't always like this. I didn't see it, but the first televised leaders' debate took place in 1960. It was between a, a young Vice President, Richard Nixon, and one JFK. Now, as well as this being televised, it was also broadcast on radio. And there were some really interesting findings. When they asked people who listened to the broadcast who won the debate, many people said, well, Nixon won. But overwhelmingly, everybody who watched the televised debate said JFK wiped the floor with him. No contest. JFK was youthful, vibrant, tanned, well-spoken, dressed in a snappy dark suit. And then there was Nixon, who was equally well-spoken, but having just come out of hospital, he was gaunt and tired. His suit didn't fit properly and it was drab by comparison. Plus, Nixon had the added disadvantage of sweating heavily under the studio lights. One of the media experts of the time said after that debate, it wasn't just what you said in a campaign that was important, it was how you appeared as you said it. Well picked, Marilyn. How you appeared. And that's why politicians, executives, social activists, and sadly, even some church leaders are obsessed with projecting a carefully crafted Instagram-worthy image because they know, on balance, people will go with the leader with the right appearance. Now, of course, this was happening long before 1960, wasn't it? But why does any of this matter? Well, over the next five weeks, we're exploring the life of King David, easily the most significant leader of the Old Testament. And as we do, everything we learn from David needs to be refocused through the lens of the Lord Jesus. Because no matter how great David will become, and he is great, one greater than David has come in the crucified, risen son of the Lord Jesus Christ. As for today, it's all about learning to see rightly. We're good, mostly, at seeing with our eyes, but our vision is limited. We see with our eyes, God sees people according to his heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Perhaps better, literally, the Lord sees according to his heart. Today is all about learning to see rightly. Okay, but where are we? Well, previously in 1 Samuel. We're jumping in at 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is a perilous time in the history of God's chosen nation, Israel. So let's spend a moment getting our bearings. We're in the Old Testament. It's about a thousand years or so before the birth of Jesus. God's people, the Israelites, they've been freed by God from slavery in Egypt. They've been preserved by God through their wandering in the wilderness. And now they've entered into the land promised to them by God. So all this should be good news, right? But virtually from the moment they stepped into the promised land, 
during the time of what we call the judges, for the Israelites, far from being an idyllic experience, life in the promised land has deteriorated badly. Throughout the book of Judges, think Deborah, Gideon, Samson. There's been this constant refrain, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. It's the Old Testament equivalent of every man for himself. That was life in the promised land. And for the Israelites, their chronic disobedience against God had resulted in disaster after disaster after disaster. And then with the nation on the brink, the Israelites come up with this bright idea and they say to Samuel, the prophet that we'll meet today, appoint for us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. That'll fix it. There are several problems with this proposal, not least Israel already has a king, the Lord himself, so there's that. By asking for a king then, they are rejecting the Lord, so this is personal. But then, given their hard hearts, perhaps it's not surprising. I'll tell you what is surprising. The Lord gives the people what they want. Much to the prophet Samuel's disappointment, the Israelite monarchy is born. Saul is anointed king. Saul, the tall, handsome, People's Choice Award winner, he is anointed as Israel's first king. And Saul, I tell you, he has the rare gift of being able to transform a run-of-the-mill disaster into a national catastrophe. He really is quite something, Saul, and he will prove himself to be every bit like the kings of other nations. Harsh, power-hungry, vain. Saul's got it all. And so Saul's failed kingship is the context into which we find 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen, literally, I've seen for myself one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Probably. I mean, Saul is increasingly unhinged by this point. But for us, as we step back from the specifics of this drama just for a second, even before we get to David, we have our first practical implication of this passage. And it's this, whose approval matters most to you? That's essentially what this moment of hesitation is about. For Samuel, he had to choose between Saul's approval or the Lord's. Which is it going to be? Now, to his credit, you'll notice Samuel asked, how can I go? It's a good question. To which the Lord responds, verse 2, here's how you go, Samuel. Take a heifer with you. Possibly not the response he was looking for. Could you imagine for a second, you know the Christian book, Kurong? the bookstore crying. Imagine if they sold coffee cups with the words printed on it, take a heifer with you. I'd buy one. Because let's face it, if you're going to sell merchandise with verses taken out of context, you may as well make it interesting. Take a heifer with you, why not? But the point I'm making is, regardless of this initial hesitation, Samuel chooses wisely. 
He does what Saul never did. Samuel did what the Lord said. And here's where the rubber hits the road. We need to be clear in our minds. Sometimes, and this is one of those occasions for Samuel, sometimes obedience to the Lord will cost you the favour of certain people. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for it? Because for Samuel, if he anoints a new king as instructed, he'll be making an enemy of King Saul. Whose approval matters most? Whose approval do we most value? Well, Samuel obeyed. And the stage is set for God's surprising choice. I was reading a book this week. Someone can tell me exactly where this comes from. But you, you know the series Sherlock Holmes? I was reminded of this terrific line, you see, but you do not observe. It's classic detective speak, isn't it? You see, but you do not observe. 1 Samuel 16 is all about how you see, because how you see influences what you see. And in verses 6 and 7, we get this contrast between how humans see people and how God sees people. We see people with our eyes. God sees people according to his heart. That's what it means when David is described as a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean David was especially godly. It doesn't mean David was especially impressive. Actually, it's got very little to do with David at all. David isn't chosen because of those qualities. To be a man after God's own heart is a description of the place David has in God's heart. We see people with our eyes. God sees people according to his heart. And because we see differently, we make different observations. Verse 6, when they arrived, so this is Samuel now along with Jesse's family. When they arrived, Samuel saw, he looked upon Eliab. Now this is Jesse's firstborn, okay? Now, like the cedars of Lebanon, this guy is smoking hot. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You'd have gone with Eliab every day. It's easy to be wise after the fact, isn't it? But history tells us people are more impressed by good looks than we like to admit. We might as well just admit it because it's true. And to prove the point, so far as Samuel can see, and remember, this guy's the Lord's prophet, all right? So if anyone's going to be seeing rightly, it's him. Eliab, for Samuel, was the obvious choice. But when your vision is limited, when you see only with your eyes, you miss things. For example, verse 1. Did you see it? God is about to do something unusual at least from our perspective, something surprising. Samuel's told, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen, I have seen for myself one of his sons to be king. Did you see it? We're used to it. So we miss it. But Bethlehem? For the average Joseph and Josephine of the time, Bethlehem is nowhereville. What's one good thing that's come out of Bethlehem? Nothing. You'd be lucky to know where it is. Micah, the prophet, will tell us it's not even worthy to be a tribe of Israel. No, Bethlehem, goodness. 
And that highlights the point, doesn't it? God sees differently. So when Eliab gets rejected, you can feel Samuel's surprise. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Literally, the Lord sees according to his heart. And then we get this procession. My friend described it as the kind of Mr. Universe of its time. Eliab followed by Abinadab, followed by Shema. Seven times this happens and seven sons are rejected. And it leads to that almost ridiculous question from Samuel, are these all the sons you have? It's like a department store. Have you got one at the back? And maybe one in blonde? Oh, they're still the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. Think of it. The least of Jesse's sons. Was he even invited to the ceremony? What's he doing? He's shepherding. It's a role fit for a servant. And so we have a shepherd king. We have a servant king. Oh, well, now we're getting somewhere. Send for this one, says Samuel. Do you know, like it or not, our culture has shaped us to value people according to appearance and contribution. That's the air we breathe. God sees differently. God sees with his heart and he repeatedly chooses the least. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7, Moses is speaking to the Israelites before they enter the promised land and it's not exactly a complimentary conversation. He's talking about why the Lord has chosen the nation of Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, Moses says, because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. That's why he chose you, because he loved you. God sees with his heart. We heard a similar thing in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Now, the Corinthians, they were a proud bunch. This would have offended them. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things, that's you, Corinthians, of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, that's you, Corinthians, to shame the strong. And so on and so on it goes. God repeatedly chooses the least oh you chose us and so seen against this backdrop suddenly the Lord's choice of David doesn't seem that surprising after all our challenge becomes learning to see rightly rather than seeing people and ranking them According to superficial standards, the practical challenge becomes learning the humility of seeing with the heart. And one way we do that is to look upon others as those for whom Christ shed his blood. That's humility. You might not have the same interests as me. You might be a different age to me. I might not be the kind of person you'd gravitate towards at a party Gosh, we might not even be invited to the same parties. But here we are, brought together, chosen by God, 
saved by Jesus, equal members of this local expression of God's family, one and each other. Brothers and sisters for whom Christ shed his blood. That's how you see with the heart. Of course, for David, many of these lessons, they were ahead of him. Yet even now, at this early point, having just been anointed, because remember, Saul is still king, but David is the anointed. Even now, God is at work. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. wonder how they felt. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. If Samuel had said to David that day, right, David, you're anointed. Here's your job. You need to unite the nation. You need to establish Jerusalem as the capital. You need to avoid being assassinated while you're doing all of this. And you need to defeat the Philistines. And while you're at it, if you're not you know, doing anything else, David, why don't you bring about rest and lasting prosperity for all the Israelites? There's your job, David. He'd have been crushed, wouldn't he, by that kind of weight of expectation? And yet, equipped by God's Spirit, David will have all he needs for these challenges. In fact, as we'll find next week, in his generosity, God has already been preparing David preparing him for his first seemingly impossible challenge as he takes on the kind of early version of weapons of mass destruction in Goliath. He's already been prepared for this. He didn't know it. But as a shepherd, what's he done? He's defended his flock against bears and lions. And when he becomes king, actually David's job doesn't change. He's still a shepherd. It's just his flock that changes. And so he goes from defending sheep to defending people. God's been at work at him. He didn't even necessarily know. And it made me wonder this week in your situation, good or bad, in what ways is God equipping you? You might be able to answer that question specifically. And perhaps you're doing your best just to persevere. But if you're a Christian, the same spirit that equipped David lives in you. God has plans for you. You know, a thousand years later, Bethlehem would welcome another unlikely king. And once again, the shepherds would be involved. Familiar words today in the town of David, these shepherds are told, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. And just like it was for David, so it was for Jesus, still is. God's Messiah to many looks entirely unimpressive. But to those with eyes to see, to those who've received mercy and forgiveness from this king, well, 1 Corinthians 1, we heard Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So how's your vision? Do you need to refocus I've been reminded of those words from the beginning of Hebrews 12. Do you remember? Let's throw off everything that hinders. Let's run the race marked out before us. And how do you do that? You fix your eyes on Jesus. How's your vision? Are you seeing rightly? Let me pray.
Gracious God, we do thank you for your servant David, for the way that you equipped him, the way that you worked through him and blessed others as you worked in him. And we pray and appeal to you that you'd so equip us for the tasks to which we've been called. Would you give us the right vision of other people? Would you give us the right vision of those tasks to which you've called us? Would you give us that spirit of obedience so that like Samuel, we would live rightly as your people? Father, this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.